Welcome to the Third Turn Podcast, a resource for maestro-level leaders. Your hosts are Kristen Evenson, a consultant and coach trained in the neuroscience of change, and Mark L. Vincent, founder of Design Group International and the Society for Process Consulting. Their guest today is Della Stanley Green. Kristen, I've been looking forward to this conversation with Della Stanley Green, and I am so glad she said yes to us and joins us today. But sometimes we take a moment to talk about the interview before we get underway. Yet today, I'd, I'd like to reverse that and talk with Della right away and let her story stand on its own. And then you and I could maybe offer some reflections out of what we've heard and what we think it might mean. So are you okay with that if that's how we do it today? I'm totally up for that, Mark, and that'll be a refreshing twist, I think. All right. Della, let's bring you in and welcome you to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really fun to be with you. I'm looking forward to this quite a bit. Good. Me too. You will bring a really fresh perspective, I think, to our listeners. And I want to start off by introducing you. I understand you currently serve as one of three persons who combined are the co-interim superintendent for the Western Yearly Meeting. And that right there, I've got several questions for you. <laughs> so first off, what is the Western Yearly Meeting? So Western Yearly Meeting, the really the full title is Western Yearly Meeting of Friends Church. So it is our regional denominational body for 33 Quaker congregations in the western part of Indiana and a little bit of northeastern Illinois. And, you know, western made perfect sense 150 plus years ago when, when we were started. <laughs> Lots of people think, are you in California? And I'm like, right. no, I'm in western Indiana. <laughs> well, that's helpful because I thought, gosh, am I missing a Midwestern yearly meeting somehow of some group that I should belong to? So that's helpful. And I've long admired the Quaker community for d their discernment and spiritual practices. So um, another fun reason to be talking to you today. So tell us now about the three-person approach to co being co-interim superintendent. Is that kind of a Trinity triune thing? Or how in the world does that work with three people? You know, it's really kind of amazing. The three of us, Sue Whitesell, Sylvia Graves, Bean, and I, um, have done volunteer work for Western Yearly Meeting off and on for, oh, well over a decade and discovered that we actually work very well together. We complement one another's strengths and weaknesses, we, 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 and we know each other really well. We know what each other's gifts are. And when the Yearly Meeting superintendent announced her retirement, I was just very prayerful about this because I had worked for Western Yearly Meeting early in my ministry as the associate superintendent and was just concerned about the future and cared about the organization. And I was being very prayerful about it. And one day I literally just had this Holy Spirit inspiration of, well, what if there were three of us that did this? And I, and I knew who the other two would be. And I thought, well, this is... This is kind of out of the box. I think this is the Holy Spirit, but I better check it out. So I called Sue and I said, and Sue and I had been talking about having, doing some ministry together about how that might happen. We'd been 
thinking and praying about that over the last couple of years, and nothing had really quite emerged that was the right thing. So I called her and said, okay, Sue, uh, this may sound crazy, but what do you think about this? And we started talking and she said, I'm kind of excited about this. Let's call Sylvia and see what she says. So we called Sylvia and she got, began to get really excited. And we said, well, let's get together in person and talk about this. And so we did. And as we sat around the kitchen counter at Sue's house, there was just this spontaneous energy that began to emerge. And we began to see how if one of us could work um, 25 hours a week and do primarily the administrative things, and that would be me. And if Sue could primarily focus on intersecting with our pastors, and Sylvia could work primarily with just getting some of our processes and procedures up to date and that kind of thing. I mean, that's just one example. And they could each work about 10 hours a week. They're both in kind of early semi-retirement. I'm still very much in my full work mode, uh, retirement's a little bit further down the road. So, and we thought, okay, let's put together a proposal. And then we all said, you know, they're not gonna go for this because this is way too far out of the box. It's not gonna happen, but maybe we'll just stir the pot a little and help them think about how to do things a little bit differently that they, but we wanted to work from our gifts. And we saw that our working from our gifts could be a gift to the yearly meeting in modeling that kind of, Instead of just plugging people into positions and kind of limping along, that we could actually work from our strengths, from our gifts, from our abilities, and and balance one another. So we put in our proposal, and amazingly, they called us in for an interview. And so we went and interviewed, and the next thing we knew, they were saying, would you like to come and do this for a couple of years? And we said yes, even though we really had not thought it would fly at all. And we did decide that I would be the team leader because I had more time to give um, so that so that it what didn't get weird where people were thinking, now, who do I talk to? Um, we also each took 11 of our congregations to be somewhat focused on so that we would be the point person for for each of them. And of course, this was pre-pandemic. This was August of 2019. So obviously we've been through some interesting changes in between and how we've done things and all that. Wow. Well, that is a really unique perspective. I love the fact that you're approaching it from bringing your gifts, your collective gifts and partnering in that. Um, and I will say, Della, we in our community of third turn conversations and Meister level leader conversations, this idea of shared leadership is can be a little confounding for people who, you know, I think we're used to culturally thinking there's one person in charge with a team supporting. This is a really unique story that we get to dig into a little bit today. And it speaks to me of, first of all, your discernment, your ability to discern and your ability to share leadership, which speaks to me of there must be a really interesting leadership journey that you have, first, third turn, second turn, third turn, that kind of paves the way for this. So will you kind of take us back to the beginning? Where did your leadership journey start? How did it unfold to bring you to this kind of um, yeah. unique story? It's more complicated. I There is not a straight line. I My ministry, my career has been very zigzag. And I know for some folks that might feel 
really odd and like, well, that's not the real way to do it. And I struggle with that. I really do struggle because it's like, okay, this is outside what is considered normative in the church and in our society. But just to say, it really started when I was a teen and I felt a call to ministry and I didn't understand how that was going to work because I thought it I was being called to Christian education ministry, and and I was. And I didn't know how that would possibly work because I didn't know any Quakers who were paid to do Christian education ministry um, were primarily small congregations, and I just didn't know how that was going to happen. So God and I kind of tussled about that for several months, and I was, I finally just kind of said, well, God, you know that's not going to work, but I love you and I'll continue to follow you. And God was very kind to me and understood that that was not a no, I'm unwilling. It was no, I don't understand how this works. And so many things unfolded. And eventually I did, I did follow that call. I did go to seminary. I did work in Christian education. In fact, that's, that's another whole amazing story of discernment and people nudging me and all kinds of things. But but anyhow, that that was the, the genesis was in my in my teen years. And the other thing that happened in my teen years was my father pointed out to me that in our youth group, I wasn't the president of the youth group. I don't know if I was probably the secretary or something or treasurer. I don't even really remember or vice president that he saw leadership in me, but it was not the upfront kind of leadership that I was the face of the organization or the voice of the organization, but that I had a way of being able to influence the conversation and to provide my perspective in a way that people could listen to it. And he helped me understand at 16 or 17 that this was a valuable thing. And that was very different from all the other voices I was hearing about what it meant to be a leader. It meant you were up front. It meant you were extroverted. It meant you were probably male, although thankfully among friends, we've always had women in leadership. So that voice was pretty muted, except for in the culture. But within the church, within my home experience, that was that was very strong that women women were to be in leadership and that was normative it was expected it was encouraged and that's that was a huge huge gift to me both that big perspective but also my father's very particular taking time to tell me that and it took me a long time to really get that but i i would remember it at key times in my life. So those were two really pivotal things I went on. Obviously, as I said, went to seminary. And then um, my first full-time ministry position was actually to work with Western Yearly Meeting as the associate superintendent. And at that point, that was primarily Christian education, but also working with our Peace and Social Concerns Board and our Outreach Board, which is basically missions, um, as well as visiting our congregations and preaching on Sunday mornings, which was something I didn't really think I wanted to do, but I ended up doing and learned to enjoy that to a certain extent and continue to be grateful. I don't have to do it every single Sunday. And I give great kudos to pastors who get up every Sunday and preach. So from there, there was a point where I realized that it's not that my vocation was negated in Christian education, but that it was going to get have a more particular focus in that I was being called to do more ministry with young adults and those who worked with them. 
And uh, so I transitioned to a position where I became the executive director of Indiana Network for Higher Education Ministries, an organization that worked with campus ministries all over the state of Indiana at both private and public um, institutions of all types, Christian and otherwise. And it was a really amazing time. I got to work with young adults around questions of their own vocation. I got to work with campus ministers and be supportive to them and providing some resources and some educational opportunities and some networking opportunities and got to work with folks in student affairs, participated in conferences there and just got to bring a religious perspective into those spaces where that wasn't always normative. Got to work with wonderful folks in both the ecumenical and interfaith communities and loved it. And then we came to a point where the organization was no longer sustainable and viable. And that was really hard. We pulled out all the stops. We worked on fundraising. We did all the things that you're supposed to do. And in fact, had a very wise mentor say to me, Della, you did everything you could. And nevertheless, we had to close. And that loss coincided within the same year as the death of my mother. And that was that was tough. Um, you know, she was in her 90s. She'd lived a good life. She went quickly. But it was very hard. And I knew at that point that I simply could not go out and walk into another executive director position or leadership position that I was just, I was very tired. We'd worked very, very hard. You know, I've been working with my staff and coworkers to help them transition into new positions. And uh, I just did not have the energy and I just, and God knew this and opportunity presented itself. And I ended up serving for four years as the executive assistant to the um, vice president for academic affairs, dean of the faculty at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm very grateful to them that they were willing to have me come and do that because they could have said, well, you're too overqualified. No, we don't want you. On the other hand, they they saw that I could bring some gifts, and then they also gave me some opportunities. Um, yes, I was the executive assistant, but I also want to say I was given such great gifts by, by my bosses there. First of all, they said, don't forget that there will be ministry opportunities at that desk. And there were, of course, because ministry can happen anywhere. It doesn't matter what title you have. There were conversations with students and faculty and visitors and um, there were opportunities to help communications get smoothed out. And, and there were other times that I got to share my gifts as a spiritual director. It was informal and I, nobody would, would have thought, oh, this is a spiritual direction session. But I got to listen. I got to, got to ask good questions. And then they also gave me amazing opportunities. Like I got to teach a class session on uh, spiritual direction. I got to teach a class session on vocation. I got to teach a class session on church budgeting. I got to teach a class session on uh, the Quaker discernment process. So I, 
I felt like my gifts were valued. And that really underscored for me how important it is, is to work from our gifts. And then that kind of intersects with, with where I started the story with Holy Spirit inspiration to approach my friends and see. And one of the funniest questions that we've gotten, and but it's kind of understandable, is will you still be friends after this with each other? And we just laugh and say, well, yes, of course. Um, because there are certainly things and uh, things that we know about in history where trios of people working together did not end well. Um, but we are committed to one another. And in fact, we, we call ourselves the superintendent sisters because our primary identity is being sisters in Christ. That's primary. That's what we root our relationship in. We know we can be honest with each other. If one of us hasn't communicated things clearly, we can say that to her. And it's not the end of the world. We say, oh, I'm sorry. This is what you need to know. Please understand it wasn't on purpose. And there are times we, we don't see things exactly the same way. Um, one of us will write an article for our weekly update and another one will say, you know, I think you need to emphasize this more and this less. And we just take it. We, we always assume that we will do better by being together. Della, this is so rich. It's just so rich. And there are so many things. I'm, I'm watching Kristen, of course, because we're all on screen together as we're talking about this. There, there's so many trails we'd like to go down with this. I'd just like to underline a couple of things. I mean, first of all, you've been honest and you've let some of the rawness of your story be visible to us as you've shared. Thank you for that. And it's such a rich reminder that there is no straight line here. There is no one story. Uh, I think one of the great temptations as we're working with what we call maestro level leaders is that there's a path and there's supposed to be a certain, you know, uh, ribbon around it and gilded success story, as opposed to it's the journey, it's being wide awake, it's finding out who you are separate from your role and then bringing that to the role rather than the other way around. And you've evidenced that in so many ways as you've shared. You, you've had a couple of executive leadership roles in your life. And now you've put yourself in a position to serve alongside other executives rather than run those institutions or to, in this case, right now, working in a partnership with others who are having newer experiences in some ways in their life, at least with this institution, although it's where you had previously served. When we were preparing for this, I sent you a video clip out of the movie, The Intern, where Robert De Niro's character reveals that he once worked in the building as a head of sales and marketing, uh, now working as an executive assistant for Anne Hathaway's character who's a startup CEO and all that. And I just sent it to you because I had to ask, has your life been anything at all like that? You know, I, it kind of is. I have not seen the whole movie, but watching the clip, the first thing that struck me was that his character was so much about being that steady, non-anxious presence for her. And it's like, that's who I want to be. That's who I've, you know, one of the things that, that became clear to me as I worked with my spiritual director and life coach as I was transitioning from Inham and trying to figure out what next was that what really brought me joy was helping other people do their ministry well, that that was really the big picture of my ministry. That was, that's the expansion that's happened from, you know, first it was Christian education, and then it was more specifically focused on young adults and those who work with them. And now it has expanded out to being able to help other people do their ministry well. 
And that is such a, it just brings incredible joy to me to be able to do this. Mm. And I have to share that another thing that brings joy to me, and I know most people think this is just the craziest thing, is administrative work, because that is a way that you can help other people do their ministry well, is to take care of the administrative work. And so bringing that into those situations where I've not been the, the leader, the leader, so to speak, um, has been very, very important because if I can release them to pay attention to the things that they do well and the things that they need to have their time and energy focused on, then there's an, there's a synergy there that is not there otherwise. And that's, I just see beauty in that because there are possibilities that are opened up that are not there when everybody's trying to take care of things in, in ways that don't energize them, that deplete them. Mm -hmm. So how did you arrive at your own commitment to be that non-anxious presence, loyal team member to slide back into a second chair, maybe in some ways even a third chair, a little further down in the organizational chart, and, and bring that same commitment to care uh, that you had when you were in the driver's seat? I think the realization that the call was expanded, and so it mm. didn't matter where I was. So it wasn't reversing, it was expanding. It, it, there was a freedom in that. It's really hard to explain. And it wasn't that I didn't struggle. There were days I came home in the first few months where I thought, oh, I just have so many ideas and I could fix this and that. And again, I learned to go back to what my father had reminded me, have the conversations to say, well, I'm noticing this with my bosses. And if they accepted you know, my perspective, great. And if they didn't, to just let it go, to realize that I had the gift of not having to be in charge, although I'm quite sure my husband would say that I didn't let go of it quite that easily, that there were times I came home and I was, I would say things like, well, I just, if I could just do this one thing, things yeah. would be so much better. I, it, it probably helps that I'm a two on the Enneagram, which is the helper. So there's something in my nature about that. The other thing is I had another mentor point out to me many years ago that even though I had not been aware of it up to that time, that one of the gifts that I bring to organizations is a sense of stability and calm. Again, I think that's a gift God has given me. I don't wake up every morning and say, I will bring stability to this organization. It seems to be a gift that I've been given, and evidently that's something that I am able to do. We will return to this thought-provoking conversation with Della Stanley Green in just a moment. Are you a leader or owner who's beginning to think about how and when and what succession might look like for you in your organization? If so, Maestro Level Leaders was designed with you in mind. This peer-based leadership journey helps leaders set aside intentional, proactive time to explore and map what succession, sustained organizational success, and legacy looks like in each leader's unique life and organizational context. Our next cohort kicks off this October and is forming now. So if this sounds helpful for you or someone you know, and you'd like to learn more, please go to maestroleveleaders.com and complete the form there to initiate a conversation. We are talking with Della Stanley Green about her very unique, and I would even say countercultural, 
counterintuitive mm-hmm. journey as a third turn leader. Um, Della, I would say actually that um, I see you as a gifted generalist, which allows you to pivot and refocus and take different seats on the bus for different seasons. Um, and that is a gift. It's been a gift to organizations, I know, and I know it requires a lot of discernment on your part, you know, as you transition those places. But that's given you a unique opportunity to serve a variety of organizations with a focus on the mission thriving beyond you, stewarding mission from a variety of seats on the bus. So you bring a unique perspective, having seen a variety of situations like that, um, leadership transition from a variety of angles. What advice would you have for any of us who have a vision to leave an organization better than we found it and place it in the hands of a, of a successor who can help it accelerate and thrive after us? I would say the first thing that I think of is that transitions are oftentimes of both fragility and strength for the organizations themselves as well as for the people involved. They change is what makes transition happen, and change inevitably means loss. It just does. You know, the generally prevailing attitude in our culture is that change is good and exciting, energizing, it gives growth. But it seems really hard to acknowledge that change can also, at the very same time, be hard and tedious and tiring and require some pruning before growth can actually happen. And that's not something we like to talk about. And I wish I could say that in church and other faith-based organizations that we do a better job of this than the rest of the culture. And sometimes I think we do, but often I think we just find it very uncomfortable. And so we just tend to forge ahead and make the great plans and, and not stop and pause and say, and this is hard. And we wish that it would just happen with the snap of a finger. But transition takes time. Change is immediate, but Sometimes it's immediate, but transition takes time. It really takes time. And and to be kind to ourselves and one another in the midst of it and to realize that we don't have the same path of grieving. You know, some folks are terribly attached to certain ways that we do things. And for some of us, we think, why does this matter so much? I'm done and over this. I've been I've been down the road for miles and miles, and this person is still dragging their feet. And it's it's very easy to become judgmental in the midst of this and, and trying to help people and trying to help ourselves not be so judgmental, but just to, to be kind, to link arms, to remind ourselves that we are moving towards a future and we have a shared vision and to articulate that in ways that make sense for everyone. Um, again, that's a very collaborative approach, and it's slow. It's really slow. Quakers kind of have a reputation of not making our decisions very quickly, but when we make them, they're they're thoroughly we're together on them. Now we don't always achieve this. We do not always achieve this. I mean, kind of the hallmark um, decision that we made this way, and this is this goes so far back because. We have not done quite as well in in the present, but Quakers came to clarity a hundred years before the United States abolished slavery that 
we were abolishing slavery among ourselves and that we decided that that was not what we wanted. But it took us 100 years of conversation to get to that point. So, and sometimes you do, sometimes you don't have that kind of time. You know, we don't always have 100 years. Sometimes we don't even have 100 days. Well, what's funny in that, Della, is that you took 100 years to decide something 100 years before the general society got there. And if we ever talk about slowing down to go fast, what an example uh, that is. Our time with you is moving along quickly. So I'm going to jump into the next question and then we're going to get to our turning point questions that we like to ask everyone. But I want to just check in one more time about your development as a leader. Uh, so many leaders are considered to be model leaders, like a Jack Welch, for instance, uh, from GE <laughs> fame, you know, because they're strong and they're hard chargers and they're confident in what they know and they they make decisions quickly and they they are just strong. Uh, they force things into existence through commitment and grit and persistence and by showing up and dressing right and, you know, having all the right moves. And I'm not saying that you're not in that way at all in any respect. I think your grit and your strength is coming through and what you're sharing with us. But you clearly have a soft and gentle presence and you bring a servant approach rather than I'm in charge uh, kind of running the organization. And it's proven effective and it's very true to who you are. It's very integrated. You've focused and bring this is who I am rather than this is what I do and this is what I've done. So we think, I think we can recognize that we need more leaders like you for organizations to be strong and vital as someone ends or for them to end well because they've accomplished their mission for this season. So I, I'm just wondering if in addition to your father's calling it out and some of the mentors you've had, if there's anything else you might point to in how you came to understand yourself as a leader and to grow in leadership as you have? Yes, there, there was another very pivotal point. I had just started working as associate superintendent and one of the major things in my portfolio was the summer camping program. And I was following someone, I was following a man who epitomized what most folks would think of as kind of the ideal person to be in that position. He was young, he was male, he was extroverted, he was sports-minded, he was right in there with the games, he was good at interacting well with large groups, he loved the youth. And I had that first quality of being young myself at that point, and the last quality of loving the youth. But I didn't have any of the others, I mean, not even remotely. And as I was walking across the grounds of the camp, I heard these wise words in my head, be who you are. You don't need to be anyone else. And it was, it made all the difference in the world because then I was free to work from my strengths. I was free to work with the fact that I worked better with small groups and individuals. It didn't mean that I didn't have to do upfront things, but there were other folks who could do some of those things. And I learned, I learned to have a camp voice that could, uh, could uh, penetrate the, uh, the loud <laughs> cacophony in the dining hall. And, and I learned some things to cope. Um, but I also learned that it, it just went better when I was myself and I didn't try to be that other person that, that I simply could not be. And I think one of the things that affirmed for me that I had made the right decision by 
taking those words to heart and not just thinking, oh, well, that was a fleeting thought in my mind, but actually knowing that those words were a gift from God was when 15 years later, I actually popped back into Western Yearly Meeting for one summer because they were in between Christian ed directors and asked me to come back part-time. It was also a pivotal time for Inham where I needed to cut back my work because our cash flow was low. We were waiting on a grant. I mean, things had come together. So I was back at summer camp and I was there with some of the young adults who were taking leadership who had been campers when I had been in the position previously. And it was an incredible joy to be with there with them and seeing them use their gifts and know that I had been a piece of that. And it was, that just felt like a huge affirmation that I had paid attention. I had listened. I had done the right thing for me to be myself and not try to be in the mold of traditional leadership. But it's been really hard. There have been times I think, I'm not that great. I'm really terrible. Fortunately, one of the things of getting older is that I don't believe those voices the way I did when I was younger. Della, this has been such a refreshing conversation, and you bring a really unique perspective about what it means to lead and serve in different seasons and different seats on the bus, and we are grateful that you have brought that to us today. Before we let you go, we always like to ask three turning point questions. And heaven knows this first one, I don't know, you've served in a lot of different places and ways, but if there was any other career decision you would have made that you, you know, would have been fun to do, what would that have been? I actually sometimes wonder if I had taken a drama class earlier in my college career and not in the last semester of my senior year, if I would have become a theater director or a film director, because I kind of liked that a lot. That's great. Kind of fits with some of the, the roles you've had too, I think, you know, seeing the big picture and serving in different places. The second question is, what is a leadership lesson you wish you had learned earlier? I wish I had learned earlier that just because an idea is very clear in my mind does not always mean that I have communicated it clearly to those around me. I need to be very careful to double check that with people and not make assumptions. Sometimes my mind moves very quickly and I make intuitive leaps that not everybody else is making and are certainly not very clear. It's all clear in my mind, but it's not clear to others. And I wish I had realized this sooner I could have eliminated a lot of communication confusion. And, you know, I'm finding in my practice that communication confusion is a big deal. It shows up everywhere. And it's because folks think exactly as you said, that I've thought about it. So therefore everybody else has, or I said it once and everybody got the message, uh, that kind of thing, as opposed to making sure all the way up. And all the way down the organization, you have a nice, clean line of sight with common understandings. That's a lot of work to do effectively. Della, we also like to ask what a current book is that you're reading and why you chose it. I'm reading Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters by Greg McKellen. At this time in my life, I'm really being much more careful about what I say yes to and what I say no to. And as I read the premise of this book, and the premise is that there tends to be a cultural bias towards doing things the hard way. And it's as if there were virtue simply in doing things the hard way, that there's something, maybe that Puritan work ethic that we, we, tend to, we tend to do that without even really knowing it. 
So I was rather intrigued by that concept, and I've been reading it, and it's it's very intriguing in thinking about his primary question is, how do I make this easy? And it's amazing how stepping back from something and giving yourself just a little bit more space to think about things can make a difference in simplifying, not in a simplistic kind of way, but in a more minimalist kind of mindset of how do we not get overwhelmed by this? And I've really been enjoying it. And and one of the neat little things is I'm reading along and suddenly he's quoting a Quaker author and talking about oh, yeah. <laughs> Quaker discernment process. And I was like, oh my goodness. So that was a fun little, fun little uh, gem in the midst of it. Della, thank you for your inspiration and your example and sharing that with us here today. And as you depart, we just wish you all the best and blessings on the place you're serving now and wherever the road may take you from here on. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see where the road leads for you. Thank you. Thank you. And I truly would appreciate your prayers for what might be next because I really don't know. Okay, Mark, you set up this conversation with the idea that we would do takeaways afterwards. And certainly my mind is racing from a lot of things Della shared with us. But why don't you kick us off? What are your main takeaways from that conversation? Well, good. I'm glad I go first because your last word is usually very effective and wraps it up well. So we're going to give you the second option here. Uh, For myself, I've I've had the privilege of my path crossing with Della several times over the years in these different positions that she's shared. I was once an interim executive director for another organization in the same building where she was functioning in her role. So we had a chance to talk sometimes and for us to get to know each other a little bit. And I think what she shows us is that some of the conventional wisdom about how an executive leadership journey should function, and especially how an executive leader transition should happen, doesn't have to be a law for everyone. There's maybe kind of an idealistic picture, but how we get there and how we do it and how it's run will be different in almost every case. And so one example is this standard advice that when an executive leader leaves, they should leave utterly, never have contact again, completely disappear. And, you know, in so many cases, that is very wise advice. But in some cases, it isn't because institutional knowledge gets lost and the value of a fabric of relationships disappears and then the organization loses out on its future value. So from a Meister level leader perspective, there is a more difficult and higher value pathway that's out there. And we've had hints of it in some of these conversations. So I think back to the interview you and Jeanette Robert had with Lon Schwarzentruber in episode 10, and more recently, the interview with Dennis Gingrich in episode 23. And here Della is another example of someone who learned to govern themselves so well that in their leadership quotient, there's a wisdom that now becomes available for others to draw upon without any gaming, without any you know high degree of expectation or manipulation that can sometimes happen. And so in this kind of a case, that founder or that former executive director or a CEO is able to remain nearby to bring that deeper vision and wisdom. It's not lost 
to the institution uh, and they're able to find a new place or bringing themselves to this new place as, as Della has done. Folks are actually glad to have them around instead of saying, oh, here they come again. They're going to you know, push me for something hard. So it sets the stage for any successor to manage their tenure and their future transition well because the past is not lost, but neither is it law and forcing on them. So there's a lot to think about here as we look forward and think about our own journeys as maestro level leaders. So Kristen, what, what's your takeaway? Well, I have quite a few, but I think two things are top of mind for me. And the first is this idea that leadership oftentimes can feel like it becomes our identity, our specific role as a leader, and the specific seat in which we serve can kind of become our identity. And Della's journey speaks to the fact that leaders, leadership gifts are needed in different seats on the bus, various seats on the bus, and we can move between those. And, and I think the value of being a utility player as a leader, I was talking at two conversations yesterday, one with a founder leader of an organization and an investment banking firm. We were talking about all the transitions he's overseen and then his own transition um, from founder leader to more of a board role. And, and he just shared how surprisingly refreshing it is to be in a different seat as a leader at a different season. He's not, you know, the primary CEO anymore. And he was surprised by what a gift it is to be in a different seat on the bus. So that is striking. And then my nephew talking, he was going heading off to his, his baseball game. And he's gifted as a pitcher and as a first baseman. And he can move around the field as a utility player, um, all for the sake of the team. And I think Della's journey speaks really powerfully to that. And so I really like that idea that to enrich our perspectives of what leadership can look like. And then the second thing, I just have such a passion about this, Mark, and you've heard me talk about it before, but this idea of seasons of leadership, and especially for women. I think actually men could get in on this game um, as well, uh, but women especially, you know, our brains are less, um, are more interconnected, the left and right hemispheres, we're less able to compartmentalize our lives. So we see our work, we see our family, we see our friends in a more holistic way. And we serve and lead across those places. And in my work with women leaders, it can be kind of refreshing to switch seats. I am thinking of a woman who led an organization for years. And as she was sensing that season drawing to a close, her sister was struggling with cancer and she decided to take a sabbatical go help her sister. Her sister passed away. She helped her leave this world. And then she came back and stepped into a leadership role with a foundation. And that idea that we can kind of reinvent ourselves and serve in different places for different seasons, especially as women, I just love that. I think we need to give ourselves more freedom mm -hmm. to do that. Well, and a big example here in Della's story was the recognition that she was grieving as uh, something that she loved was uh, coming to, in a sense, its natural end. And a parent uh, was coming to her natural end. And it was dealt with at that season in life, as opposed to being postponed because you'd sold your soul to the corporation. Uh, that, that really stood out to me. You've been listening to the Third Turn podcast. I'm Mark L. Vincent, and Kristen Evenson joins me in hosting these conversations. Josh Brinkman engineers our sound, and our producer is Jennifer Miller. 
If you would like to be considered for our next Maestro Level Leaders cohort, it launches in October. All you have to do is set your browser to maestroleveleaders.com, fill out the brief form, and you're going to get into a conversation right away with Kristen Evenson. The Third Turn Podcast is a production of Design Group International. You can learn more about Design Group International as well as its blogs and podcasts just by going to designgroupinternational.com backslash resources. You'll find a whole host of things there. For some, it is sobering news that life ends eventually and everything they've done is going to shift into the hands of other people. For others of us, it's an open and wonderful and joyful opportunity to help our grandchildren's grandchildren flourish. And we invite you to live well with that in mind. Farewell for now.